Hello and welcome to a special episode of There's No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. By the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. I'm Jennifer Macy. After last summer's devastating bushfires, there's been a strong push from Aboriginal groups to reignite cultural burning practices and take a more active role in hazard reduction burns. In European traditions, it's often men seen at the bushfire front, fighting the fires, protecting homes and the environment. But in some Aboriginal nations, in New South Wales, it is the women who are responsible for cultural burning, who pass on their knowledge down generations and who know how to manage the risks. As part of her PhD, Vanessa Kavanagh is currently trying to understand how Aboriginal women's engagement in cultural burning in New South Wales can be both supported and promoted. She shared her work so far at Entanglements, a joint lecture series by ACCESS, the Animal Studies Research Network at UOW and the Wollongong Art Gallery. Fingiwala, Nyanyeti, Vanessa Kavanagh, Jagan, Bunjalang Jagan, Bunjalang Dubai, Wanderall Woman. I acknowledge that I'm a visitor here on Darawal, Wadi Wadi, and Newan lands. So even though I'm an Aboriginal woman, this is not my country. The country of my people are a long way away from here, and so I acknowledge that I'm a visitor and I pay my respects to the elders past and present to the ancestors and the spirits of this land. This land keeps me safe while I work and while I learn. It also is a place where my kids are growing up. So there's lots to be thankful for. I also acknowledge my supervisors for my PhD and the Bushfire Risk Management Research Hub at the University of Wollongong who provide some financial support for my project. My PhD is focused on Aboriginal women and cultural burning in New South Wales. So I always just acknowledge where it is that I came from. I didn't just arrive here with all this brilliance and knowledge. It's through the hardships and the work and, and the challenges that people before me have faced. So this photo is from when I first graduated at the University of Wollongong with a science degree with my mum and my dad by my side. Throughout this research, I also travelled to different countries. And so I acknowledge that while I'm on different country, that I'm a visitor there. I pay my respects to that country and I thank it for keeping, keeping me safe while I'm travelling around doing my research. I wanted to start off by just setting the scene. Why is it that I came to do this research? Well, why did this research choose me? In the 1960s, my parents bought a 26-acre block at Colo Heights. It's on the edge of the Wollamai National Park, northwest of Sydney. Our home was surrounded by bush, and it was about 30 kilometres from the closest urban development. Here, fire was a normal characteristic. We had a slow combustion stove in the house, and we used that for cooking and warmth every winter. In spring, we regularly did pile burns to clean up around the house to keep snakes away and to make mowing easy. Away from the house, we would burn areas each year. Most of the local people did. We did it with the perception that fire was a natural thing and good for the bush. 
It was controlling weeds and encouraging natives. In this context, fire was not a fearful experience. Rather, fires were fun. Fires meant that we were outdoors learning and working and keeping our home looking good. Fires always also could mean family. With many of our extended family living about an hour's drive away, it wasn't unusual for several carloads to turn up on the weekends. My favourite fire memories include Krakenite, running through the paddocks with lots of cousins and bonfires that burnt through the night. In my youth, I can't remember a summer that wasn't marked by my parents spending days volunteering in the local community fire shed. It was something that most families participated in and a real strength of our community. All the mums there making the sandwiches for the fire crews and the dads out driving the fire trucks and fighting fires. At that time, the local kids were also encouraged to learn about fire and its dangers. The smell of that smoke was the smell of summer and initiated a heightened awareness of potential danger throughout the community. As a family, we also did some things that were unique from other landholders. We practiced our Aboriginal culture on our lands. As well as maintaining that important family unity, we also practiced ceremony privately. At that time in Australia, society felt like it wasn't as embracive of Aboriginal culture as it does now. So we did these practices in private. It was just for our family and it contributed to our family strength and our cultural survival. After I finished high school, I did a traineeship in bush regeneration run through the local government. This traineeship was so similar to what I already knew. It was encouraging natives, treating weeds and working outdoors to promote healthy habitat for Australian native species. Within a few years, I'd secured a job within the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service as a field officer. A field officer is a name for a practical park operations worker. As a field officer, I completed, completed all types of practical training, from plant ID, bush regeneration, marine mammal rescue, disentanglement, to chainsaw skills and bushfire modules. All of this training was founded on the Western scientific model. I really loved this job caring for a few local parks all year round and travelling around fighting fires in the summer months. I got trained right up to remote area fire team member and tree feller. This meant that summertime I was getting winched in and out of fires by helicopter and spending long hours in the bush, putting in containment lines or mopping up and blacking out after wildfires had passed through. While I was in this National Parks job, I was aware that there was only a handful of women in these roles in comparison to men, and that at the time I was one of only two Aboriginal people working locally in the Sydney area. During that time, I also continued to learn about Aboriginal culture, especially the ways in which the department had responsibility for protecting Aboriginal culture in terms of policy and procedure and cultural heritage um, management. This built upon the knowledge and the experiences that I got from my family growing up. I spent 16 years working in that agency, moving from field officer to project officer, Aboriginal Heritage Division to co-management division, and finally as an, finished off as an Aboriginal Heritage Researcher. 
Throughout that time, I was active in the agency's Aboriginal staff network, making connections all across the state. And so it's all of those experiences that contribute to me doing what I am now, doing my research in Aboriginal women and cultural burning in New South Wales. So what is cultural burning? Cultural burning is a term used in New South Wales for the use of fire by Aboriginal people as a caring for country activity. Aboriginal people have a relationship that fire that reflects our ongoing presence in Australia. Fire has been an integral part of Aboriginal society for practical and spiritual purposes since the beginning of time. We use fire for cooking and warmth and light, for hunting and renewable harvest, tool and resource making, clearing the land, signalling, communication, ceremony, storytelling and educational purposes. The word cloud on the screen shows some of the different names for cultural burning that you might be more familiar with. Words like low intensity burns or fire stick farming. There are some crude similarities and differences between cultural burning and Western conventional fire methods. So some of the differences include, in Western approaches, the relationships to fire is often perceived as negative. The approach is focused on fire suppression, fire fighting, controlling and prescribing fire based on Western concepts of nature. Western processes of burning is different. Using a hazard reduction burn as an example, these burns are often large in scale with entire blocks burnt, continuous ignition lines marching across the landscape. The ignition of these fires is quick and assisted with fuels, drip torches and aerial incendiaries. These fires are often hot and their flame heights are high. The process often only involves adults who have specific qualifications and training and who, up, who uphold the required work health and safety standards. In contrast, Aboriginal approaches to fire position fire as a positive. Fire has agency. It is associated with the sacred and with the spiritual. Fire is a comfort. Fire can be a teacher, demonstrating how to be with country. In some circumstances, fire was kept and maintained over long periods of time, even if it was just smouldering. An Indigenous approach is walking with fire, being more cooperative, working together than one trying to dominate the other. Aboriginal burning processes are slow, fire travelling at, at walking pace. Fire is allowed to lead its own burn path, leaving unburnt areas which are refuge for small animals during the fire and food for animals after the fire. The fire temperatures and the flame heights are lower. Natural fire breaks occur. And children are encouraged to join in because cultural burning has many educational qualities. Between Indigenous and non-Indigenous fire, there are also some similarities. Both approaches have an understanding and respect for fire as a potentially damaging force, which must be carefully considered to reduce risks of damaging wildfire. Especially as the human population expands and we increasingly encroach into bushland. We know that fire is necessary in Australia to encourage optimal species diversity, but we know we also need to coexist. Aboriginal fires and the smoke from those fires predate interpersonal interactions between Aboriginal people and European explorers on the southeast coast of Australia. In 1642, Abel Tasman noted fires and smoke made by Aboriginal people on, Australia, on Tasmania's east coast. 
but he did not actually see any Aboriginal people at those times. Similarly, as they sailed north along the east coast of Australia, the journals of Cook and Banks contain numerous entries describing the smoke and fires. On the same day that James Cook observed and named Gouliga Mount Dromedary down on the south coast, he also observed Aboriginal fires and smoke, noting in his journal, we saw the smoke of fire in several places, a certain sign that the country is inhabited. James Cook, 21st of April, 1770. One week later, a firing of a different kind took place when the Endeavour anchored in Botany Bay, where initial interactions between the two parties included Cook firing musket shots at the local Aboriginal people. Some of the early literature on Aboriginal burning in the southeast are included in colonial explorers' observations. With the arrival of Europeans, another use of fire is noted. Fire was then being used as a form of political activism, as a force to drive off the invaders. Fires were often lit around the colonists' camps and their crops were set alight. Thomas Mitchell's notes provide clear note of the, uh, a clear indication of that Indigenous people, including women and children, were discriminately applying fire to the landscape. As you can see by this quote up the top, fire, grass, kangaroos and human inhabitants seem all dependent on each other for existence. The native applies that fire to the grass at certain seasons in order that a young green crop may subsequently spring up and so to attract and enable him to kill or take a kangaroo. It's the females and the children who chiefly burn the grass. That was Thomas Mitchell in 1848. Additionally, Mitchell was aware of the changes in the landscape where Aboriginal fire had ceased or depleted. Aboriginal populations had been depleted and decimated in some places from the negative impacts of colonisation and uh, the ensuing infectious diseases. Mitchell also notes that there was resistance to fire from in the attitudes of the invading colonists. So the second quote there. The omission of the annual periodical burning by natives of the grass and young saplings has already produced in the open forest lands nearest to Sydney thick forests of young trees. Kangaroos are no longer to be seen here. The grass is choked by underwood. Neither are there natives to burn the grass, nor is fire longer desirable among the fences of the settlers. Around the same time, George Augustus Robertson noted observing Aboriginal women in Victoria using fire as part of the harvest of Murnong, yam daisy. From Mitchell's notes, the distinction between Indigenous relationships to fire and that of the colonists is made evident. We can see here the evolution of a Eurocentric fire suppression paradigm. This paradigm has prevailed into contemporary attitudes and relationships to fire management. Since colonisation, archaeologists and anthropologists have been noting how Aboriginal people use fire. Archaeologist Rhys Jones first coined the term fire stick farming in 1969. This was to describe the mosaic patch burning of grasslands to lure in animals to fresh growth. Now when people think about Aboriginal burning, this is a, a kind of stereotypical image that might come to mind. Many people think automatically of top-end or remote area burning when discussing Aboriginal burning activities. In the northern regions of Australia, though, Indigenous people are engaging with fire in a very specific way. And this is not necessarily transferable to other areas. 
In the north, there are savannah-dominated landscapes, and Indigenous people are often participating in carbon farming markets. The carbon market is where carbon emissions are offset through the purchase of carbon units. For example, in 2018, the Queensland Government announced it would offset all the emissions from its fleet of government vehicles with carbon credits generated from Aboriginal carbon farming. So in this way, it's effectively paying Aboriginal groups to care for country. The carbon ab abatement program is about savannah burning at a particular time of year. It works in that part of country because savannas are extremely fire-prone landscapes. If cultural burning in the southeast can create the same outcomes in terms of carbon farming is yet to be seen. However, there are some useful comparisons that may be applicable to the south. Participants in the carbon farming market say that the opportunity creates outcomes, such as just getting more Aboriginal people back out on country. It also means employment for Aboriginal people where other secure employment is limited. The social and cultural environmental benefits go on. In one study, before the carbon abatement program was initiated, Aboriginal people were concerned for the lack of animals like emu being seen on country, where they once were commonplace. They were also concerned for the damaging wildfires that went through, burning everything and leaving the land barren and unhealthy. For them, the carbon farming means returning people to country, re-establishing caring for country activities. They're seeing the animals come back to the landscape and they're reconnecting with Aboriginal heritage sites. They're also reducing the fuel loads around sensitive Aboriginal heritage and their communities. Following Rhys Jones's work, there's been ongoing debates as to the nature, extent and models of burning that Aboriginal people engaged in, both spatially and temporally across the continent. There have also been debates on the impacts of these fires, including the demise of the megafauna. Historian Bill Gamage describes that Australian landscape was dominated by mosaics of vegetation. This included large swathes of grassland. This, he argues that this grassland supported the dominant meat sources eaten by Aboriginal people. However, there were areas that weren't burned, and this encouraged diversity of vegetation types in the landscape. So we know that fire is not uncommon in Australia, where the driest inhabited continent on Earth and much of our biota are highly flammable. We know that there are some species, some plant species that do not respond well to fire. So any progress in this area must be carried out with knowledge and integrity. Bushfires are started either naturally by lightning or by humans where fires may be lit deliberately or accidentally. In recent decades, advances in science and technology have expanded our understanding of bushfire, as well as our understanding of the implications of fire and natural hazards within the global context of climate change. We know that the fire seasons are getting longer and more intense and increasingly unpredictable. The fire season is almost unidentifiable as a distinct season. In Australia's south, fire scientists predict an increase in fire activity as a result of dryness caused by warmer temperatures. Parallel that with the exponential human population expansion, and obviously fire and fire preparedness is something that we need to pay good attention to. Fire belongs in Australia. We should not look to, we should not look to eliminate it, but we have to improve the way we understand and coexist with it.
to the ways that the Aboriginal community have responded. In New South Wales, there's been a revival of cultural burning activities. This is after years of restricted of this is after years of restrictions enacted by the colonial project. The colonial project limited Aboriginal people's access to country and prohibited cultural practice. Re-establishing cultural practices are important for our cultural maintenance. On the screen are some of the examples of current activities and organisations in New South Wales that facilitate cultural burning. In 2018, the National Indigenous Fire Forum was held at Bundanon near Nowra, and this was the first time that it was held outside of Cape York, and this was in response to the growing cultural burning activities down here on the southeast. Cultural burning is positive for a variety of reasons. For Aboriginal people, it can facilitate a return to country and cultural practice, intergenerational knowledge transfer and improving the health of country. In terms of fire agency, it can mean hazard reduction. Cultural burning can transform the way that fire is perceived and used within fire agencies. Cultural burning can stimulate a range of new social interactions between agency and Aboriginal people and wider communities. In 2016, in response to the growing activities of cultural burning, the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage first released the Cultural Fire Management Policy. This was to provide guidelines for cultural burning on National Parks Estate in New South Wales. There is also uh, interest in cultural burning from outside of Aboriginal communities and agencies. The photo in the centre at the bottom here is a good news story from Tartha, describing how the cultural burns that had been undertaken there prior to their wildfires a year ago had been helpful in mitigating the effects of those wildfires. A similar story is being told up on the north coast, up on my grandmother's country at Jubulum, where we undertook a cultural burn before those wildfires that went through there not so long ago. So looking at my research, in pre-colonial times, we know that Aboriginal women were just as engaged in country as were men. Whereas today, Aboriginal women are not as well represented in caring for country activities. From research, agency discussions, and my own personal experience and observations, it is mostly Aboriginal men who are doing the environmental conservation works. My research explores if and how Aboriginal women in New South Wales are or want to be involved in cultural burning. I aim that my research will be led from Aboriginal women in a collaborative approach. My research is not intended to collect traditional knowledge or stories, nor is it intended to define what constitutes cultural burning or how it should be undertaken. Rather, it is intended to understand how women are participating and identify any barriers or challenges to their participation so that these might be addressed in assisting making cultural burning more gender equitable if that is appropriate. My research is qualitative and has three key research questions that are up on the screen. And this is because my research has both practical and political applications. Of course, these questions may evolve and change throughout the research journey. So question number one is fairly straightforward. Question two centres the agency of the participants by asking Aboriginal women how do they want their knowledge shared. And question three looks specifically at the barriers and challenges that Aboriginal women face. My conceptual framework sits within an Indigenous research methodology and will draw together key discourses of decolonisation, 
intersectionality, Indigenous leadership and self-determination. Every aspect of the research is engaging with Aboriginal people, from myself as the researcher, the participants and the theoretical framework and the potential end users of the research. It all affects and involves Aboriginal people. As Indigenous scholar Lester Rigney points out, the politics of Indigenous research, it's not just about doing research for research's sake, but it's about Indigenous-led research, people working intentionally to create change for our people, driven by our people, not by others telling us what we need. I'm pursuing a collaborative approach which requires input from my participants, meaning that my research methods will evolve as part of my research process. I'm also keeping a research journal which will be useful for autoethnography. From my personal experience and from what I understand and what I am being told very clearly by my elders, some of what is being shared with me is not for the research but is for me as a person. It's for me as part of my own personal development and my own personal responsibilities. My research is also performative. I'm researching and simultaneously contributing to the ways Aboriginal women engage. For example, there have been several Aboriginal women who hold roles as land managers here in New South Wales who have come to me asking about how to undertake cultural burns as part of their bushfire risk mitigation responsibilities. So the research outcome for them is information, support and action. So far I've presented my research at several relevant events and to various groups of Aboriginal women and some Aboriginal men as well. Last month I presented at the Office of Environment Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal Network meeting to around 130 Aboriginal people from across New South Wales. After that we held a specific women's circle on my research. Last year I presented at the women's circle that occurred at the, Aboriginal, uh, at the National Indigenous Fire Forum in Bundana. In both forums Aboriginal women indicated that there are issues that they wanted to highlight throughout my research and they wanted to talk about their experiences around fire management more broadly. And as I continue my research the next two years, there will be more to add to this story. So Aboriginal women here have, have indicated that they're interested in the, t in the topic, that they're supportive of me undertaking this research. Some of these women are already involved with cultural burning while others are just wanting to be involved or some are just wanting to understand what it is. Some women are cautious about what cultural burning is and what it means and what it means in terms of their involvement. So there's a whole spectrum of um, results. So why is it important? In her work on gender, race and class, Bardi woman, Professor Dawn Besserab, said giving voice to Aboriginal women who represent different layers within the Aboriginal community is essential if true representation is to, uh, is to occur. So it matters that we hear from Aboriginal women who are involved in cultural burning or that want to be. More broadly, my research sits within and across two social political streams, natural hazard management and Indigenous and Indigenous affairs. There is significant economic implications that encourage research in this area, with billions being spent each year. Spending in both areas is set to increase. In addition to the economic costs, Aboriginal people in New South Wales are increasing as land owners or managers, 
Although in comparison to other states and territories, Aboriginal owned land is minute in New South Wales, with less than 1% of New South Wales Crown land being Aboriginal owned or managed under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, and only a handful of favourable native title claims achieved in New South Wales. The prediction is that there will be a rapid, rapid expansion of Aboriginal owned or managed lands in New South Wales in the coming years. This land recovery is worthy of careful consideration in relation to development opportunities. This expansion will also mean that Aboriginal people as landowners in this regard will have increasing responsibilities in relation to managing bushfire risks on our estates. There are implications for understanding and maintaining safe processes, having adequate resources to undertake this management, but it also offers opportunities to provide for Aboriginal employment, uh, education and cultural strengthening. Some Aboriginal groups are already doing this. For example, Bambi Enterprise Development Aboriginal Corporation, which are up on the northern tablelands in New South Wales, manage lands at Wattle Ridge under an established Indigenous Protected Areas Agreement. They have fire management as part of their work at Bambi and their objectives include to minimise the risk of uncontrolled fire, to reduce fuel loads and to reintroduce cultural burns. This is to promote healthy country and healthy communities. So the impacts of my research is varied. Because of my personal background in the environmental sector, I sit on the Office of Environment and Heritage Cultural Burning Working Group. Thus, my research will directly influence policy development in this area. And this will lead to developments in practical operations. Again, because my career sits within this sector, I have ongoing responsibilities and opportunities to make change to and advocate for Aboriginal advancement here. And this is ongoing reciprocity. Beyond that, as this is a cross-cultural activity, interactions that cultural burning creates has engendered are important in contributing to the broader reconciliation agenda. The research will also centre culture. It will impact on the identity and intergenerational knowledge transfer, including that of my own and of my children. I'm focused on New South Wales specifically, however there is a national and international community of Indigenous people researching on Indigenous fire. And so my research contributes to that space. And finally, for me, this research will result in my successful completion of a PhD. For me, this is an enormous, enormous achievement. And it is also an achievement that recognises the experiences of all my ancestors. And it celebrates our strength as strong Aboriginal people. Boogle Bear, thank you. And then it was time for questions from the audience. And the first question was whether the authorities, such as the Rural Fire Service or National Parks, are working with Indigenous groups to engage in cultural burning practices. Uh, I, know, I know from the staff in the agency that I've interacted with that the agency is very supportive. They see cultural burning as something that's an opportunity, like I said, that brings people back in contact with being on country um, and all of those good outcomes that can come from cultural burning. Uh, it also just needs to be done very carefully, like there's a lot of assets around, so even though national parks may be supportive of that process, they also know that they've got a responsibility to keep the community safe over, overall, so, yeah. 
still lots of potential there to nick. I guess you could say, generally speaking, rural settler people have been more predisposed to using fire than um, in the past. And there's been obviously been conflict over use of prescribed burning between you know, National Park Services farmers and ecologists and farmers in general. There's been a sort of tension around the politics mm. of burning. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, um, it just occurs to me that maybe cultural burning, is it, is, it, is it potentially a bridge between rural people who might not otherwise be disposed to engage ab Aboriginal people, Indigenous mm. people, and, and Indigenous people who, who mm. want to use cultural burning? Mm. Absolutely. I'm just speculating, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's potential opportunities there for... Um, you know, what you might want to refer to as reconciliation or truth-telling, um, just opportunities for non-Indigenous people to engage with local, local mob who may just want to be able to access sites or places on their properties. The fences have stopped that for, you know, many years and this might just be an opportunity, like you said, to make that bridge back into accessing lands, strengthening those communities, but also creating relationships between the different groups. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks for your presentation. Um, my name is Michael. I'm Natural Resources Manager at Bundan on Trust. You Yay. mentioned that the um, National Fire Sticks Workshop yeah. was held there last year. I wonder what suggestions you might be able to offer um, for people in the Illawarra Shoalhaven to be able to, yes, in increase that opportunity for Indigenous people to be um, applying these practices, particularly on private land. There's mm -hmm. vast amounts of private land and people struggling to, to manage you know, weed issues, um, access, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, we were enormously grateful and, and um, you know, to, to be able to host that event and in fact to, to have 150 hectares of country on, on our property, Bunnanon's mm -hmm. property, Bunnanon's property is the people of Australia's property, yeah. Um, but um, it would be wonderful to to assist and to find out from researchers like yourself how we can extend that sort of activity onto mm. more private land around the country, yep. around the state. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether I've got all the answers, but I think creating that demand and making um, local government or agencies take notice of that demand. So if you're, you know, you have bushfire risk mitigation responsibilities on your property, why not invite the local Aboriginal people to come and participate or undertake cultural burns on your property and start that conversation either with the land councils or with local elders, local Aboriginal community groups, or even approaching people through uh, the RFS service. I know that they've got Aboriginal dedicated workers within that agency to help um, undertake cultural burns and facilitate that cultural burning process. And if there's more and more private landholders in Australia asking, requesting for this as something that they want undertaken on their land, then there's that supply and demand thing that could come out of it. You know, Indigenous people make up 3% of the total population, so we can be a squeaky wheel, but it'd be better if there were more squeaky wheels. And that um, I know out at Brewarrina and Burke, they've set up two Indigenous um, RFS teams, so all Aboriginal um, personnel, like two crews. 
and those crews out there are being used uh, in different parts of the state to go in and undertake hazard reduction burns, not specifically cultural burns. But that was because, and their government paid positions, so the, those Aboriginal people living in those, you know, I mean, kind of, you wonder why they're out in Burke with, if maybe there's a high demand of, of burning um, mitigation works that need to be undertaken at their Burke and Brewarrina. But they're now Aboriginal people that have got jobs through state government but are undertaking works on private land to try and reduce the fire, the bushfire risk. So make the demands, I suppose, and, and invite the opportunities with the local Aboriginal communities. Because, yeah, quite often the Aboriginal communities will think we've been locked out for such a long time, they may not recognise that there's friendly people or allies around that are wanting Aboriginal people to come back onto their private land and that that is something that's welcome. Great question. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's not a tricky question, Vanessa. Yes, I know. Uh, starting from the Illawarra and kind of looking out, you've got any examples of where Aboriginal women uh, are going to be involved in fire management into the future, into the near future? I mean, where's the nearest instance of this happening or likely to happen? Oh, well, I don't know how much I want to divulge, but had someone very local asking me if we can do cultural burns here in the Illawarra. Um, there are some places that we probably can't burn because of the assets risk. And um, so, it's, you know, it's about going through the process as well. But there's been local land councils just up the mountain that have asked about if we can undertake cultural burning as part of my PhD process. Um, so for them, like I said, they get to have the cultural burn being undertaken, but I also get to do my research with those women. So hopefully, yeah, it's, hopefully it happens and it's close by. Be nice. Thanks, Jack. Sorry, if I can just add. Yep. It's, it's one of those things where, like, the reason Vanessa doesn't want to make that specific is that there is both cultural approvals to, to go through for that and agency approvals. Mm -hmm. so, so there are very local um, possibilities. But, but there's a, quite a lot of steps yet until we're going to say who that is. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, you were saying that, that contemporary Aboriginal burning is largely done by men. What are you, how are you negotiating for women to be sort of brought back into that Mm. cultural practice. Yeah, and it's, it's probably a bias that I carried into the research myself too, like it wasn't until I started undertaking the research, listening to the men talking about cultural burning and they were saying this is women's business and this is traditional women's law and where they were being um, aware of that and respectful of that in their work and trying to encourage women into the spaces as well. And... Um, Aboriginal women are incredibly busy and there's so many priorities in communities that sometimes other priorities don't get seen to. So, you know, the women might be dealing with, you know, all kinds of traumas or priorities within their families and their communities and getting out to do work on country may not be something that they're able to spend time on straight away. So they may be happy with the men to to take on and, and to maintain, you know, to lead in that area. 
but I know that from all of the cultural burning workshops that I've been to and the conversations that I've had with Aboriginal men, they are incredibly supportive and encouraging of Aboriginal women taking up roles in these places. And they just say, look, we're not going to lead it for you because that's inappropriate, of course, but they are more than willing to make space for Aboriginal women to work in that, in that area. And I guess the other thing too is that I'm speaking about New South Wales as, as if it's a homogenous unit and that just simply isn't the case. And there are going to be places in New South Wales where cultural burning may have been a gender-specific uh, activity and that's something that will, you know, just need to be written into the research and understood locally as well because we don't want to try and present it as a one-size-fits-all type scenario. You know, there's diversity in country, there's diversity in communities, there's going to be diversity in cultural appropriateness and protocol. So just being aware of that and being able to take that respectfully through the research is important. Thanks, Kim. Hi. Um, I'm an Aboriginal ranger down near Macquarie Pass, like in Albion Park. Yep, lovely. I think you spoke to... Maybe I shouldn't say it because you didn't say it, but one of my bosses. Okay. And we're about to start doing our first cultural burn, so it sort of answers his question with Noel Webster. Yeah. Um, coming down. So had you ever been involved in cultural burning before you started this job? Nah, my mum did go to the one in Bundanon. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's five, in our team there's eight men and me and only one other girl. So yeah. it is a really hard industry, I think, for women to crack the... Absolutely. It's just seen as being really manly to be out in the bush and, I don't know. Yep. Yeah. Are I'm you Rosie? Sure. Are you Rosie? Yeah. Rosie? Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so, um, Rosie, Rosalie? Rosie, yeah. Rosie is one of the Indigenous rangers at Calderwood Estate, which is a lend-lease property out west Dapto. And um, Maru Midiga, which is an Aboriginal organisation, have secured contracts out there for ongoing land management as part of Lend Lease's development responsibilities within that development. Yeah. And so that has meant, as you said, employment and opportunities for Aboriginal people who may not have had those opportunities or access to those lands. But for people like Rosie and for one part of my life, people like myself, Having a job is really, really important, not only for having the access to country, but it's the security that comes with it, to be able to raise my kids up strong, to be able to go off and get an education, for me to have a mortgage and have my own house. There are lots of implications and outcomes from this work. It's not just about wanting to do burning on country. It's really important. Thanks for coming, Rosie. It's great to see you here. That was Vanessa Kavanagh, a PhD candidate and associate lecturer with ACCESS at the University of Wollongong, talking about Aboriginal women and cultural burning in New South Wales. This episode was recorded live on Thursday the 11th of April 2019 at the Wollongong Art Gallery, which sits on the land of the Dharawal people of the Yuan Nation. There's No Place Like is a production of ACCESS, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. To hear more from the Entanglement's live lecture series, subscribe free to There's No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. 
For more information and for the latest research from Access, go to the website, which you can find easily by typing in both UOW and Access into your search engine. Or you can follow Access on Twitter. The handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy, editing by Lizzie Jack, and thank you to Kevin Brand for the original music. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.